a little disappointed in Tyler Heckman not being here today. I wanted to give a shout out about a slam dunk. It was the greatest, greatest moment. I got to announce the game, and when Tyler slam dunked it, the ball just bounced off the rim, and then he slammed it home. And I had the microphone right in front of me, and I was just like, "Yes!" And I was like, "I was like, oh, I'm mic'd for this." But everybody else yesed it, so I think it was masked. Um, but I was not an impartial uh, announcer in that moment. Uh, Tyler got a shout-out anyways. The next day I was at the uh, school. I was uh, substitute teaching for Jack Carpenter in PE. My arm's a little tender today from dodgeball. Uh, but uh, uh, not kidding. It is, really. Might need some. Uh, but anyways, the kids, they were coming in. They're like, Tyler Heckman slam dunked last night. It was, it was awesome. Um, this morning, we want to continue our series on the book of Colossians. Uh, there is uh, a, an organization called Odyssey of the Mind. Uh, around here, it's Destination Imagination is a similar thing. They're different organizations, but they're similar, right, Michael? Sort of. Michael will come up and give a five-minute explanation, but he doesn't want to today. But anyways, I was part of Odyssey of the Mind. It was uh, fifth grade. And I was excited to be a part of it, and we worked on this really great skit. They give you a problem, uh, and you have to solve it, but you also, like, write a skit around it. And I'll tell you, my mom said we had the very best one that day. Uh, She was just a big praise, and I think that there was no, like, mom vision going on. I think ours was truly the best. And in my opinion, it it was as well. Uh, But... The skit went fine, and we did our parts, and everything worked out well. But in Odyssey of the Mind, they had very strict rules. And the rules were you had to have all of your props fit within a 4 by 4 like, taped-in area. And so you'd stack it all up. It could be as high as it needed to be, but everything needed to fit within the taped-in area. And you also couldn't go over time. Every time, every second you went over, there was a point deduction. And so what do you know? The very best uh, in the eyes of Nancy Eckes, which I think was, you know, she was the true judge that day. uh, We lost so many points because we were hanging over the edge of the tape, just a little bit, but we got deducted there. And then, you know, the person, one of the people went a little long in their stuff, you know, and I don't know who that would have been, but uh, so then there were deductions on points for going over, and I know that you guys are already analyzing how can we deduct points from Jordan for going over. Um, Go ahead and figure it out. I'm sure that's what you'll dwell on the rest of the way, Uh, but we ended up losing by a few points because of our deductions, and so then embittered uh, I have hate rules uh, rules ever since uh, because it was just like it's keeping you from having fun and from really enjoying life. That's how I uh, felt about rules pretty much since then. And so uh, I think there are some in this room that can relate with me of a disdain for rules. And then there are others who are like, no, no, you have to have the rules. And I think that we should have a conversation and hash that all out and figure it out today. But... Uh, it was just so restrictive of, you know, like here was something I felt like was really creative, but we were, we were hurt and harmed because 
we broke a couple of rules. Now, we knew the rules, and they were already predefined. I open with that because Christianity, I believe today, is sort of embattled in a list of rulemaking. And really, depending on your perspective, you're either fine with the rules or you feel like maybe the rules are a little too strict. And in the book of Colossians and the story of Colossians, Paul is going to do battle with people who have started adding to the rule book. They've started adding to the list of things that it means for you to follow and love Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going to address the issue, and he's going to bring to light something that is of critical importance for the people in Colossae, but I believe is still of critical importance for us as Christians. We live in a very um, uh, difficult age, in a world and a culture that is telling us a long list of rules about what it means to be a good person. I imagine if we surveyed the room this morning, about what makes you a good or bad person, we might get a very long and lengthy and even conflicting list as to what makes you a good person. And we could throw any number of of topics in front of us and we could find so many things to disagree upon and fight over. And basically, we could just create our own Facebook group. And uh, we could see all sorts of discord and disruption and hatefulness that sort of brews in us because people aren't following the rules that we think they should be following. Does this make a little bit of sense? We have a lot of people imposing rules on us about what makes you good and what makes you bad. Who has the moral authority in our culture? Who has the right to tell you what is morally good and what's morally wrong? And the answer to that question is, we believe everyone has the right to be the moral authority in our culture. We may not think that that to be true, like that they should, but we let everyone have moral authority over everyone else. They can voice their opinions and they can say, you know what, you're wrong and you're an idiot. And there's nothing we can do about it. In a world and in a society where everyone holds the moral authority to say who is in and who is out, that means, what, a moving target? At least in Odyssey of the Mind, I knew it was a four foot by four foot area that we had to keep our props in. But how about for you as a Christian? How about for you as a, maybe not even a Christian yet, but wondering, what are the rules that I'm supposed to be following and who is making them? How do I live as a good person in this world? Where your views about homosexuality, depending on the perspective and what you think, you're either a good or evil person for what you think. How do you live and function in a world where whether you vote Democrat or Republican, it's all in the eye of the beholder as to whether or not you are a good or bad person? Moral authority, who has it? In a society where everyone holds moral authority, all I can see is everyone else ruling one another out. Everyone gets excluded when everyone has moral authority. Because everyone can find faults and failures. Everyone can look at the people in their lives and say, well, at least I'm not like them. 
And what I have found in my own life, I am really, really good at looking at your failures with a microscop, uh, microscopic focus. And I have really blurred vision when I look at my own self and my own failures. I know I'm the only one, so I'll confess today. At least you're not like me. But friends, how do we live in a world like this? And I believe Paul is trying to contest people who are trying to tell Christians these these are the targets that you need to be shooting for. These are the rules that are for you. If you're really going to be a good person in the world, you're going to be able to do these things and you're going to have these spiritual experiences. You're going to act this way. You're going to have these experiences with God. You're going to pray this way. You're going to read the Bible this much and you're going to have all of these things in order. And so my heart for you today is to make you feel really bad for yourself and that there's no hope at all, right? Now, what does Paul have to say to us to say, what do we do with this list of rules? Now, I have a lot of teachers in the room. I know they like their rules. They put them up on the wall. And a lot of nurses in the room, they have to follow the rules or people die. What I'm saying today is, what makes you good? And who's the one that has the moral authority to look you in the eye and say you are loved and you are good? And Paul, he just wants to give us this one big reminder this morning. That it's Jesus Christ who has the moral authority. And he's the one who's died for us. And who's redeeming us and who's saved us. And he looks us in the eyes and he says, yeah, you you haven't really quite measured up, but you're not ruled out in my book. You're redeemed in mine. And I hope that this will pour out from the text. We're going to read it a little bit differently. We're going to read the latter part and then we'll read the what sets it up. Because this is how my brain works. So you're stuck with that. I'm sorry. So here we go. In chapter 2 of the book of Colossians, we will begin reading in chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility in the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and uh, sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. 
Now, there's a lot going on there, but I hope you would simply see that there were Christians who came to believe in Jesus Christ, and then suddenly they had the chart sort of expanded on them. It's like, here, love and follow Jesus, and people were all on board with it. And there's a little bit of Bible history going on, but there is a, uh, there is a group of people, some of them Jews and others that are outside of the Jewish faith. And Jews were the ones, that, they knew all about God. And they had a relationship with them, and they had the Sabbath laws, and they had the eating laws, and, the, and they had all of these laws, but then there were this new group of people that were coming in, and it's always this wrestling match. How do we invite people in who aren't like us? How do we get them to follow the God that we've always followed, and we've always followed in this way? And so they said, no, you can't eat that. And there goes the bacon, and there goes every breakfast that we've ever enjoyed here, you know? It's like, and, and Paul is hearing this. They're saying, you need to keep worshiping God the way that you always have, always with the festivals, always with the old law. And Paul is saying, stop adding to what has been given to us in God through his grace and his mercy and his love. Stop adding loopholes and jumping through hoops and just come and approach God in this way through Jesus alone. Paul's saying, you can do all of those things and the only thing that happens is you feel better about yourself and you don't get any closer to God. You can jump through all of the hoops and you can get all of the awards and you can feel really good that you're a really good Christian, but all you've done is jump through hoops. And you get an award, and all it is is puffed up. And he says it this way, and he uses a word that is kind of hard to define. It's the last word in verse, uh, 20, or in verse 23, when he says, in restraining sensual indulgence. It does no good, and you might have a whole bunch of different things, depending on your translations. And I spent a little time with it trying to figure it out this week. And I hear, here's what I think. And it could very well be wrong. But I think what he's saying is you can do all of those things and it won't fill you up. You can do all of these things and you can run on the treadmill of all of those efforts and all of that. And you will end up in the very same place you started. It will have done nothing to satisfy your soul and your longing for God. It will just merely puff you up. And so you can keep heaping up the rules. And you can keep adding to what it means to try and follow God. Or there is a better way. And the better way is presented just before it. In verse 6. If you jump back with me now. This is the, this is the way my brain works. Why did he write that? Well, let's look at verses 6 and the following. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, this is what Paul wants you to do. Continue to live your lives in him. Live your life in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. If you want a list of the rules, there they are. It's pretty simple. Continue on the path. You love Jesus, stay on it. And don't stop and just stay with him. Continue in your life in him. And root it in him. Dig, you know, dig your roots deep in Jesus Christ and stay sustained and, and built up in him. 
and keep growing, strengthening your faith. You want a list of things to do? Just keep walking with the Lord and digging your life deeper and deeper into Him and being strengthened in your faith as you were taught and then express it in overflowing of thankfulness. Walk with Him. Stay with Him. Be built up in Him. And be thankful in Him. If you wanted the four walls of the Odyssey Odyssey of the mind about what it means to walk with Jesus, there they are. Walk with Him. Stay with Him. Dig deep with Him. Keep growing in Him. Overflowing in thankfulness. See to it, then, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Let verse 9 sink in for a second. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Not just part of God, all of God is in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, and having canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it all away, and he's nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If Paul were to take a look at our world, he would see a great deal of people trying to make a very long list of rules about what it means to be a good person. And depending on our perspective and living in the world that we live in, everyone gets to lay claim as to what is good and what isn't. And all that I can see is a really big pile of of guilt, a pile of shame, a pile of brokenness about never being good enough to quite measure up. And filled with all of that, we can look at others and say, well, at least I'm not like them, and we can just build this false sense of security, of at least looking and saying, well, at least I'm not quite like them. We live in a world where no one is allowed to judge the other person. And Paul, he actually says, stop judging each other. And we get that it's pretty easy to stop judging the person who's in sinfulness. But we should also stop judging the person who we think is better than us. Stop assessing and thinking that, man, I wish I had their faith and I was like them. We have a way of looking at the world and we try and compare ourselves and we compare ourselves to feel better than those who are fallen and broken and we don't feel like we quite measure up to the people who have it all together. 
what I'm saying is stop, you know, stop looking at me and thinking you're inadequate. Thanks for laughing. I appreciate that. The heart of it is this. None of us measure up. None of us measure up. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we can look at people and we can say, man, they have it all together and they're having experiences with God that I want to have and they have a prayer life that I want to have and I don't have it and I don't feel like I can attain it. And we can also sit on our pedestals and we can look at a world that's hurting and broken and they are so lost, they don't have any clue of what is good and right. We can look down our noses at them. And I think all Paul is saying to us is this, would you look at the cross? Would you look at the Christ who has taken everything that you have ever done and all of your sin and all of your failures and all of your inadequacies and all of the good and all of the bad and all of the evil and everything is nailed to the cross and he says, I have disarmed the powers. They no longer hold power over you. You see, Jesus, he subjects himself to all of the same moral authority that we've been subjected to. He looks at the Sadducees and the Pharisees of his day and they were all saying, no, you have to be this way. And you don't quite measure up. And what they do with the man who doesn't quite measure up, they nail him to a cross. And they don't live up to, his, or to their standards. He, they don't live up to their expectations. But Jesus, he disarms them. He disarms every last one of them and he leaves them completely impotent of their power. And he says to them, you're forgiven. Every last one of us forgiven. I know in this series you're ready for the what's next. But it is so critical for us as Christians to build our foundation of our life rooted and established and built up together in this growing faith and growing gratitude in God. We don't get chapters uh, or Chapter 2, verse 6. We don't grow in our strength unless we understand our foundation is the cross of Christ. The cornerstone of our life is trusting in the one who's taken all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our failures. And he's taken all of our accomplishments and all the things that we might boast on and he says, it's all a wash. Because I forgive you. And all the things that work and all of the moral authority that's trying to impose on you the right way to live. He shines brightly and he says, look at me. And follow me. And follow the way of love and humility and selflessness and kindness. And Paul's going to direct us that way. But first he says, would we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ? Would we look to the cross? Would we look to the one who has disarmed all of the powers and says, I'm the one in authority now. Jesus Christ has the moral authority. He is all good. And he's laid down his life for you. Would you embrace it and come and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and King? And you may have made that commitment a long time ago. 
And if you're anything like me, you need to start every new day and start every night with a renewed commitment of looking at Christ on the cross, knowing that he is true Lord and true King. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you so much, and I thank you for this day to be reminded that there isn't a moving target on what makes us good and what doesn't. The only goodness we can stand on is your son, Jesus Christ. And so forgive us when we compare ourselves to others and feel morally superior than those we disagree with. And forgive us when we feel inadequate, when we compare ourselves to those who seem to have it figured figured out. And forgive us, God, for looking for satisfaction in things that will only lead us to death. And forgive us for thinking that we can make ourselves look good. And forgive us for all the times that we ran from you in our shame. We praise you for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we repent, God, for all the times that we have fallen short of you. We ask of you, God, that you would lead us, lead us to you every day to see of your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love. We trust in you this day, God, that you would lead us home to you. So stir in our hearts, God, a desire to grow in you and be strengthened, and to live a life overflowing in thanksgiving for all that you've done all that you are. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul says, Paul says that we can do all of those things, but they lack of any value in finding real substance and strength. And Jesus, I've been reading to you, a story of when Jesus tells us that he's the bread of life. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. When I was sitting and writing the sermon this week, I had a song come on my heart. And it's a simple expression that we need every day of our lives. Give us Jesus. Give us the one who has overcome evil. Give us the one who is our true salvation. Give us the one who is the bread of life. Give us the one who is the light of the world. Give us the one who heals us and gives us help and hope. And so if you would stand and sing with me just a simple expression of a gratitude, of a gracious and great, a grateful heart, give me Jesus. Stand and sing, please.